objects which I feel like there's something about the materiality of that object that just really speaks to me and then I see the materiality of the jewellery reflected back in the object. There's this playful utility to them and they're, they're really tactile and they're really versatile in the sense that we've, we've done some really fun carabine clips for this collection that are rooted in all the, the coloured enamels because like colour is such a big part of my work and I just can't bring myself to wear black. I feel like colour so tied to emotion. You're listening to Interno, a podcast profiling artists situated in different parts of the world who are recalibrating their internal lives and perspectives of home, longing and connection adjacent to a global pandemic. I'm your host, Mariam Ursilia, and I've produced Interno with support from the Institute of Modern Art in Australia. My guest for episode four is Bianca Maverick, a Brisbane-based jewellery designer of Greek heritage. During her time at the Queen's College of Art, Bianca majored in jewellery and small objects after studying industrial design. In 2014, she launched her eponymous label, Bianca Maverick, stocking her crisp-shaped exuberant hued jewellery and accoutrements at galleries and stores in Australia, including the NGV Design Store, Pieces of Eight, and Craft Victoria, and internationally through Anthropology, United Arrows, Shopbop, and Lane Crawford. And in this episode, I talk with Bianca about her childhood as a daughter of a car mechanic and a hairdresser, and how the artist often creates utilitarian-inspired works that are primed by personal narratives and familial memories. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which we live and create work, and note that our conversation takes place between Sydney, Gadigal Land, and Brisbane, Mianjin. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Bianca. Thanks for joining me on Interno. Hi, Mariam. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'd like to start a conversation by talking about the symbolisms behind your jewellery, how you often imbue your objects with cultural signifiers that conjure up notions of place and heritage. You're well known for that. And I remember seeing your early work where you were paying homage to things like Greek pillars, hair combs and greenery. Can you talk about the history behind these motifs? Yeah, sure. I guess like one of the collections that really put the label on the map and that was one called Tropical Wave and it was really about, you know, a celebration of like living in Queensland and amazing tropical colour palette but also a lot of the symbolism in the jewellery those sort of abstracted shapes came from like memories or emotion and in Greek culture we have like an evil eye that is a blue eye that's in a lot of jewelry and it's you know a, you know a symbolic of something for protection and um I, I just always grew up seeing jewelry with the eye in it and it's not particularly something that I wanted to wear because we'd always grown up having this jewelry that had a little glass glass eye and I, I think I wanted to take the concept of that and transform it into something that felt more more contemporary and that was how it, it turned into the idea of this like magnet you know a repelling sort of like this negative energy and attracting luck and positive energy and that became like a replacement so that's probably one of the most iconic like motifs and almost yeah. like a talisman yeah like a ta- this talisman of this magnet and recently I had a 
a customer email me who was a Greek Australian as well and she bought the um, earrings particularly for that motif because she was giving them to her niece her birthday 21st birthday and it's really lovely to know that the symbolism behind the jewelry is uh, I guess something that that can be passed down through generations yeah and it's something that people like understand and appreciate well your Greek motif just reminded me of something I appreciate from my own childhood in the Philippines in my family we have this similar folklore with pineapples Uh, yeah and when you see a pineapple in a room or a dinner party or a relative's house there is most likely a folkloric reason for that when I was a kid my grandmother told me that the eyes of a pineapple actually represent a thousand eyes of dead souls so it's like a portal into another world so that your ancestors can keep an eye so when I'm in a room and there's a pineapple in the room with me I have to be in my best behavior because I don't want to attract negative energy and I also want to make the spirit world proud of me so when I left Kazon City to move to Queensland Australia I was in shock because everything and everywhere around me had pineapples you know pineapple jewelry pineapple earrings pineapple tea towels a pineapple in burgers actually pineapple pineapples decorated around the house and I just thought oh my god living in Queensland I can't go anywhere without being at my best behavior (laughs) and it's something that I still think about today have you given you a pair of earrings with like an abstracted pineapple motif on them actually I I probably would have worn them and it would have caused me to be really hyper aware of my behavior at all times but there's definitely an element of folklore in your work that pays over to your heritage in that you wear these ornaments for protection but you also want to as you said contemporize these beliefs through your fashion choices so in what other ways has your Greek background informed your creative work or the ideas yeah. behind, say, the shapes that you use and the colour palettes as well? So, um, there was a lot, of, a lot of reference to, you know, ionic columns and architecture. And then my grandmother always grew a giant pot of aloe vera. And whenever she had cooking burns from, like, oil splattering on her, she was always breaking off, like, this, like, spiky bit of aloe vera and, like, rubbing it on us or on her on her burn and um How soothing yeah so there was memories from my grandparents and their house just up the road from me in Dutton Park in my early collections a lot of those those memories became an abstracted shape that was made through paper cutouts like and then that was translated into you know a digital drawing so I could make a, a mold that you know became something that where you know again that industrial design process I used to have earrings that were like a a comb motif and just trying to think my yeah my mom's a hairdresser and she collects all these combs we have got combs from you know all, all the way over the place so she would get mad if we take this one particular comb I think it was like a cutting comb that was a little just meant for hair cutting okay yeah yeah now I can definitely see your mother's pig comb and cutting comb manifest themselves into your early designs um, so hey what does your mother think about self-isolation haircuts that's happening in homes right uh, now she she has uh she honestly mostly just cuts uh, like family and an elderly neighbor's hair like dad's retired and she's to work for dad's business and she stopped her hairdressing but um yeah she started when she was 16 she had her own business as well and my dad had his own business so I did grow up watching my parents 
have their own business and I didn't really know how to get a, I guess, a, a, like a corporate job in a way. But what's your dad's profession? Dad um, had mechanical repairs, workshops. And yeah, at one stage, I even had like my studio in, in the back of one of his shops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It would have been cool and very smelly. Yeah. Not great. It was hot. It was, it was great. It was a great space. I made it a great space. It was like the main level of this workshop that wasn't being used. And tenants just had, you know, there was like about four or five of those box 80s kind of like TVs that were stored up there. All this junk that we had, to, and we had to rip up this like vomit green kind of carpet, you know, make the space into a studio. But um, that was, you know, that was a, that was a moment in time of moved around a few different shoes, the ones up in a car garage at Maruka. Very glamorous. Very, very glamorous. Uh, and I assume your parents would be supportive of you starting your own jewelry business because they ran their own business as well. What do you think drove them to become self-made and independent? They went to school and English wasn't their first language and it was a little bit harder and, you know, a trade was something that was really valued and so they did, you know, go into a trade quite young and this is why I saw my mum just yesterday because she's got had this operation on her feet. Oh my. What was she getting surgery on her feet for? When wearing heels in the 80s one of those things where I just can't understand how they can make them do that and I'm so excited. your mom being a flight attendant yeah yeah my mom wore these disasterly high stilettos for her job whenever she flew for Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong which she did for over 20 years and people would come up to her in the streets because my mom would always look so glamorous and she'd be walking with stride and they would ask her what do you do for a living and she would tell them I walk through the skies across the world but now my mom has arthritis and she has foot problems Um, but to her it was just all part of the job at the time but also because my mom retired I've inherited some of her jewelry that she used to wear during her time in the skies yeah and even when I'm looking at you right now uh, as we're talking through zoom video and you have this chain around your neck from your jewelry line and it makes me think about your dad's mechanic shop and how he probably would have chains all around the yeah. shops and how that would have informed you creatively as well. Yeah, that's really fun. They're in de- like, I guess they're really, like, there's this playful utility to them and they're, they're really tactile and they're really versatile in the sense that we've, we've done some really fun uh, uh, Caribbean clips for this collection that are sort of coated in all the, the coloured enamels because, like, colour is such a big part of my work and I just can't bring myself to wear black and I feel like colors so tied to emotions as well and like the psychological kind of effects of color that we don't even realize I really love like creating color palettes and I guess that's how I use like the materiality of the the work I, I do use a lot of materials where we can bring like color into the work but yeah so what kind of color palettes have captivated you lately oh anything that's really soothing at the moment any pantone color of the year what is the pantone color of the year this year i always always know normally i I really love last year's color but i think uh this year is basic it's classic blue oh this is a blue yeah and the previous one was a um coral uh, living coral yes that's it and it's quite conscious and very of the now living coral and class, yeah. it just makes me think it's a very social media vibe. 
with that Facebook logo almost. Mm, well, I, I've heard a rumor that Mark Zuckerberg actually designed his Facebook profile and the Facebook brand at the start to be in classic blue because he's colorblind. Oh, I didn't mm. know that. Yeah, so that means he he's he can't see green or red, so blue is his visual compass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of color spectrums, have you heard of Flux? Oh. Yeah, you install it into your computer and it's uh, the time-based program that lotions your screen with this tungsten yellow glow. It's supposed to like lull you into circadian rhythm um, so that you prepare for bedtime. And I usually work past midnight on my laptop and I find this program to be a really soothing alternative to the 7-Eleven fluorescence that most computer programs have. Oh, that's something I should definitely do. I don't know why I can't get into it. I, and I think I need to start doing it. Yeah. I yeah. just like a lot of soothing colors at the moment. Okay. Because I guess in a way, like you just, you've got to do all these subtle things to make yourself feel comfortable in a space, especially when a lot, there's a lot of, I guess, especially lockdowns and things like that. It's really like you, you gain a new perspective because things are take it's a subtractive process of like taking away like certain elements of like your freedom and your limiting your choices. And that makes like center your you know to renew your perspective but there are I guess there's like little subtle things that you can do to make you feel comfortable in a space moving your objects around or wearing a certain color or speaking of color psychology I find the generational shifts to its color so fascinating I remember going to semi-permanent conference maybe 10 or 12 years ago in Brisbane when Louise from Frankie had just started Frankie magazine and she was told by Morrison Media at the beginning to avoid putting the color green on the front oh. cover because green front colors were really really hard to sell at shops yeah so you know green means spending so i'm not gonna buy this magazine so um that's was the idea and she was told that green front covers were no no because of this um but over a decade later there's this collective concerted effort for everybody to be green eco-friendly conscious especially with this growing research into plant intelligence and new materiality and a focus on recycling products and sustainability in fashion so maybe this has affected the way that some magazines psychologicalize her cover colors <laughs> and that said i'm looking at my bookshelf right now and i i can see the plant hunter book uh an ever hesse book and a hit style book and they're all placed in green yeah it's almost like you gotta take it with a grain of salt when i was a kid my parents had this book i know where they'd got it from like maybe a, a garage like uh like a, a car boot sale or something but it was called orange underpants <laughs> and apparently like all about like color psychology but apparently in the book you if you wear orange underpants and you're gonna have like this great day because you're just like color psychology of like being enthused with this like sense of like i know optimism okay maybe that is true because i have a lot of terracotta pants i must say i have like three orange terracotta pants that i wear on high rotation because they make me feel grounded that's interesting what you're saying about terracotta color because i feel like that's a color that I feel like really attracted to like terracotta and also mint is another it's like a grounding color and the mint is like the chameleon color that I've put in a lot of our collections is like um it's been like almost in every collection there's always like this some mint component yeah it's quite a complementary color and even I noticed your logo mark is peppermint yeah it's one of those colors where you can really like pair it with everything and it it changes and I guess 
transforms in the way that it looks when it's you know next to different colors I've got this website that I use as well and you can make color palettes on the website it's called coolers c-o-l-o-r-s but it's like so fun to make color palettes and you just tap coolers I'm looking at now coolers oh okay so color scheme generator color scheme generator yeah it's very that's something like that's really fun and but like I guess I'm, I'm like a less digital way of going and taking all the paint chips things from the bunnies. Well, speaking of paint chips, I'm interested in the somewhat unorthodox uh, way that you use uh, your jewellery to inhabit non-bodily environments in your set designs. So whenever I come across your lookbooks or product ranches, I notice that you often serenade your jewellery with everyday objects. Yeah. You've incorporated things like rocks, fruits, textile, sand and mesh. What draws you to these interminglings I have so many objects which I feel like there's something about the materiality of that object that just really speaks to me and then I see the materiality of the jewelry reflected back in the object and it's all about sort of like really enjoy these like the objects are kind of talking to each other and they're all these things I've just collected like interesting like composite rock that was like made up like out of concrete with that I found along the side of the road as I was walking or you know really you know nice pebble piece of it's actually a piece of brick that's become like a pebble or yeah just, just like that so and your aesthetic somewhat shifted I noticed um in March when the world started to retreat indoors during the coronavirus lockdown and everybody was quarantined and that's when you decided to create the everyday sculptures at home instagram activity for your followers where you invited your friends um, and followers of your work uh, who are also in isolation to create their own sculptural bodily recipe that felt like quite harmony to the eyes so you asked them to use everyday materials around them uh, like toilet paper vegetables packing tape um, orphan jewelry pieces. yeah anything that was their favorite favorite objects in the house yeah and from there you received some pretty cool submissions from creative people who forage through their domestic surroundings to conjure up this mishmash sculpture into being and you can really tell their personalities by the uh the sculptural body that they created yeah uh, for example there was like artist Brady gilman who used towels and colored pigments and jam jars and almonds uh, to make her sculpture and then there's Haley atkins the artist who used a bunch of umbrellas in a spice tin and then there was an interior designer georgia cannon who used ceramic egg and raw spaghetti for her sculpture which made me pretty hungry <laughs> and another artist holly lennison who used surf wax and dinnerware yeah it was pretty fun to see this activity grow while I was stuck at home yeah just everyone was looking for something and looking to a way to connect digitally because we were honestly getting to the point of like stir crazy and you continued this chain of creation by um, sharing the submissions that you received on your Instagram channel so that other people would be inspired to make their own bodily sculpture. And for those who wanted to see the the works, uh, just go to Instagram at Bianca Maverick. So Bianca, what propelled you to translate this into an online activity? I know that you were experimenting with some objects you had bought and that's what made you want to create your own bodily sculpture in the first place right yeah this time around I um, was able to go to reverse garbage and I had the best time just you know I'd walk down there and then I'd bring this really heavy bag home and like 
break a, a shoulder on the way home. But yeah, using all of those materials and sort of um, making these compositions with them is, uh, I guess, something that uh, I was really, we, we didn't leave my apartment for 12 days because we're crazy. <laughs> In those 12 days, I saw so many friends who were like um, rushing out to buy art supplies, friends who I don't normally um, make art. And, um, and then I kind of, feeling this really stale energy around my space and I, I don't know why I just thought that it was like a good idea to start sort of making sculptures from things around the house and stacking them together and then it started off as this thing where I was just really bored and wanting to sort of make these everyday sculptures at home in my space and then next thing you know it turned into a, a bit of a thing where I'm like actually I've got to show people this and because the way I did mine was uh, I was really stacking a lot of these objects it became just like precarious balance and I, I you know I guess being with the studio being at home there were so many interesting things that I did have around like a roll of leather or you know a giant metal ruler that became like a hand <laughs> you know really fun yeah but, um yeah I guess you know it's that it's that idea that you know you can I guess disrupt your way of seeing things a certain way and feeling a certain way in a space by just I guess looking at things in a new way and arranging them and rearranging them and just playing until you feel that like harmony between the way objects communicate and I guess that, that was something from you know the way we do like the still life images for the jewelry that it did it was informed by that we were able to start working again and we did do some photography for a new collection like we're feeling like again we were doing <laughs> one of those at home sculptures so yeah because I am working at home as well at the moment and um I, I I had a head start on that though because I guess I started working from home around October last year when Metro up where I had had my studio for years. Oh, Metro was sold, right? Yeah, it was sold and I, I, I moved out. Oh, I love visiting all the studios in Metro. Yeah. It's like this bustling haven. So many incredible artists yeah. came out of that program. Oh, it's amazing. It was just, it, for a while, I just, and I, I think I really missed working with people for those, in October, for those first few months. I was severely burnt out. But I was also missing every day this ritual of walking to my studio and, you know, being able to see other artists and like jeweler Paula Walden. And we just had so many other artists that, you know, were like, like a family of friends who all worked together in this one building and really inhabited this space. And I guess I adapted to working from home. So when everyone was feeling the pain of having to, work from home during the lockdown I'd already been through that and I guess I knew these rituals of like how to sort of I guess channel uh, like this energy of like okay I, I'm sitting down to work now even though I'm in a space that I also live in which there's so many little things like I felt like I always have to go for a walk get some coffee or if I'm not you know even not getting coffee just going for a walk listening to a podcast like I'm walking to work and then come back and sit and sit down like actually dressed like I dressed to leave the house kind of thing and I come back to sit down and so you know I guess 
um, but one of the downsides is I've started to work later again. I, I think when I did have a space to go to, I would I would cut it off at five o'clock or six o'clock and I'd head home. And then after that, I wouldn't work. But now I, I like to do like a second shift in the evening where I sneak in later and stay up working till like 2 a.m. with like some TV show on in the background. Like it, the volume literally at like two, so it doesn't disrupt my partner sleeping. <laughs> One of the big things is like, you know that there's I guess not having all of this jewelry and all of these materials and all of this stuff bleed all over the apartment and yeah have boundaries I, yeah, yeah I do love work like doing all of these like meditative sort of tasks that like peace working with the jewelry like putting things together like in front of the tv so it made me also think about my work from home routine because I worked in the tech sector for a while and so I was quite ready when when the lockdown happened but but I, I I go between two different types of personas like my copywriting persona where I do get changed as well yeah um, to get um to get to work which is like you know from the bedroom to the lounge yeah, and yeah. I do the Pomodoro technique which is 20 minutes of hardcore typing and, and writing and then you have a break yes. the Pomodoro is quite good and then I download yes. the forest app which is you put it on your phone and it kicks you out of the internet and social media. And oh, that's so good. If you don't go back on there for like 50 minutes, it grows a tree and you can donate oh, wow. to an actual rainforest to, to plant a tree. <laughs> so there's all these little things. And then when and I do my creative writing, like I, I tend to be really quixotic at 2 a.m. I'm the same. And do you know why? I think it goes back to when I used to have a lot of stuff going on with work and I was having a lot of people email at, at certain I felt like at 2 a.m. or like at 11 and 2 were the hours that no one like I felt un, I felt like I didn't have to answer to anyone like I felt like I, it was uninterrupted time that was just sort of get what I wanted to do done and I just always feel so creative and so productive when I stay up like yeah. that to work yeah I'm the same like I feel more clarified and creative when it's like around midnight maybe it's the pull of the moon and I tend to do all of my mundane tasks in the morning like you know cleaning and um, washing dishes and vacuuming yeah so you told me a short while ago that you've taken up a lot of cleaning activities during lockdown which is something that you do when you have anxiety or unrest that is you like to clean around the house as a panacea to quell anxious thoughts yeah are you open to talking about this have terrible anxiety and I think that yeah that is really something I'm just like consciously I'm always trying to manage my anxiety in a way and I guess when you're running your own business as well it just really I, I guess it it's it's like that's a hard thing to do when you have anxiety I I think that how do I explain it I guess in a way sometimes it's like trying to wield control over your environment and yeah yeah, and I guess I'm also a very like I'm a very visual person but I'm used to having a lot of attention to detail when it comes to my work so suddenly you know where I am feeling anxious and we're stuck in our apartment I feel like this might, might be a quite a bit universal thing for some people that do have anxiety you know next thing you know I'm I'm looking seeing every stray hair that like me and my partner have shed and it's like on the ground it's like ah just like the satisfaction of like vacuuming where you're like wiping something away or yeah yeah (laughs) just yeah like cleaning something with like some small little brush and just like because it's like you it's like when you're cleaning you're decluttering your mind 
yes yeah and then afterwards everything just is like okay I'm I'm calm now I can start and then go into my studio and just mm-hmm. make a massive mess and just like it's <laughs> just like yeah. stuff everywhere but I guess like you got to start from that place where you feel like there's this like tranquility around you because you've sort of wielded your space to sort of be something that's like very calming and uh, but I, I did love the the vacuuming so did you ever buy a Dyson vacuum cleaner or do you still have that uh cheap Kmart no. version <laughs> Well, getting a Dyson definitely is worth the investment. I feel like it's the third wheel in my marriage with my husband because my Dyson follows me everywhere <laughs> and I, I have long hair, so I need to vacuum all the time. Yeah. Oh, we both shed so much hair. Pete and I are just like, there's hair everywhere all over the house, just constantly in the house, whereas normally we'd be out of work and the house wouldn't get as like crazy so quickly. And then to see remnants of your own dust and hair everywhere. This is like our small enclosure. Like now we have to <laughs> That's funny that you say that because I also live in a small enclosure in Sydney and I have been vacuuming a lot because I've been working from home recently and last month the Institute of Modern Art invited me to write this essay for the gallery newsletter yeah so you would have seen the theme was new normal and so I was like pondering what to write about and so I thought okay I'll think of ideas while I vacuum my house so so I was as I was sucking things up with my Dyson I was also going hmm maybe I'll just write about dust because I've been interacting with dust way more than I have been during uh, COVID times. And my husband and I are at home, we're shedding hair, we're shedding skin, we're shedding energy. And it seems very therapeutic to get rid of that dust because you're physically seeing your cells rejuvenate in such an evidential way as you clean. Yes, it's so interesting. And also Dyson should sponsor this episode. Oh, totally. But maybe this is a symptom of like a larger sense of anxiety yeah. for us. Yeah. Because I guess like I know we're living in this like time, it's like it like this, I guess like intense like collective shake up and it's just like I guess in a good way, like rattling up, you know, belief systems and power structures for people and our own like mental constructs and our egos. And mm. I guess like, you know, we're, we're so conscious of our health and also the environment and, yeah. you know, the state of the world. And I guess, I guess like that fear can be like a real portal for change if you can channel it in a positive way. But it's almost like everything that we've built our lives around, this whole like foundation is like suddenly so shaky and it's our way of like, making meaning yeah, exactly. <laughs> like suddenly that the therapeutic nature of like all those those meditative tasks of making art and those like repetition like that medita- meditation like through repetition or, or that cleaning kind of where you're like you know you're wiping something away and you're like you know you're sucking something like it almost becomes like a, a way for us to sort of like intern like like recalibrate like our internal like anxiety about the world. So that's why making art so important. It's a way for us to share our stories of everything that we're living through. And I guess like we're living through this time where like my uncle who um he he works at UQ is, as a science professor right. and we were talking about coronavirus and just talking about like how I guess if you see the earth as like a dog and us as humans, we, we are like all the little fleas. And, it, you know, it's getting to the point now where the earth is starting to scratch back. The dog has this, like, intense... Like itch? Like, mm. you know, itch yeah. to, to scratch. And, like, in a way, like, as humans, this is, like, our 
Paris, the world needs to recalibrate. And to do that, we've got to just change so much about the world. You know, so many of these like, you know, in, inherent sort of like systems and power structures. And it's just, I guess it's so interesting to be living through that. It, it feels like ink when ink just suddenly hits a paper and then it just like the ink blot just like sort of, Splattered. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, that sensory deprivation of being like so focused on something like we're so focused every day at looking at case numbers and then you know, we're so focused on what we can and can't do because we do need to isolate and we can't do the every the daily things that we could do and I guess that makes people like like pull into focus and really internal like. And there is something about the nimbleness too. Like it's th- this era is making people feel nimble and yeah. consequential in the way that they realize what is their purpose in this world? What are they making through their work? Does it contribute? Yeah. Does it subtract? Yeah. And it's like, I guess in a way you do have to be nourished in a sense with a sense of optimism as much as you can be and just to be able to keep creating like as artists, you know, to be able to keep moving forward I guess we've got to sort of figure out like what do we contribute and what are the gifts that we bring and share with the world like what you know what's the message that we we bring to people and I guess at least this kind of like have that introspection allows us to like refocus and like recalibrate and reach like our output what we do I just have this like radical period of introspection connecting into sort of like how I can nourish like creativity and refine the message of like what I put out into the world and just I think that's you know the only thing you can really do is just take some space and I couldn't make things go faster than what they were and yeah and that's okay for me having met you in 2014 I feel like there's a sense of introspection slow making consideredness with how you create things versus when we first met in Brisbane when you were just starting out and all these opportunities lunged at you in such a frenzied manner like I remember soon after you graduated and you were stopped at Craft Victoria and NGV you experienced international acclaim and your jewellery was being worn by celebrities and your work was being featured in magazines like Grazia, In Style, Who What Wear. And you've travelled to Paris and Korea for work. Um, how were you able to stay grounded during this short amount of time and manage burnout? It's like about ritual and discipline in a way because I guess it's so easy to just feel like you, you, you can do the creative work that you need to do but you cannot care for yourself that's so easy to just to get into the zone but then to realize that you're not really really resting being idle to like be productive and be creative I didn't realize how things like that were so important until burnout but also I think that when the work's so like tantalizing because there's a lot of jobs that are just like so easy to do like the work comes it's work but it comes easily in the sense it's something that you want to do that's when it gets hard to all the lines blur and it gets harder to actually stop and and rest and and disconnect and it's just sometimes it's it's taken me like until I was like in hit my 30s to realize how you actually have to have rituals to 
just to be able to perform at your optimum and how you have to sort of be conscious of how you think about things and how you recognize burnout as well yeah and how you take your time to do things Mm. and how important it is to sort of like you know reconnect in nature or like to have some time to literally like sitting out in a chair like out in the you know kind of in the sunlight just kind of like you know lying there and not not scrolling or not looking at anything or not like listen to a podcast or read just to just to meditate and yeah yeah it's like you have to give your brain a lunch break uh, and many times we tend to skip that lunch break yeah. um, and while you were talking it made me um, think about the serpentine galleries podcast episode and playbar which is this term that describes exactly what you're um, experiencing which is like you know the fusing of labor and play because you know, you're so laser focused on the work or the enjoyment or dedication towards it that it muddies up the time between work and pleasure to a point where the nine to five routine is replaced with the 24 seven lifestyle. And this is a division that many artists and arts workers fall into. Yeah, the work that I do for, for the brand is like play bar. And then the, the, mm, yeah. uh, I mean, I worked like you just wouldn't, but I thought it was normal and I, I still feel this way because it doesn't feel it's work but it's sometimes it didn't feel like work because it was working towards this like greater overarching sort of like vision for what I wanted it to become but it meant that I was in my studio uh, I guess constantly like pushing to design and um, I guess like evolve ideas and then I'd stay there such late nights I'd sleep on like a fold-out chair yes I remember you telling me about um having backaches because you used to sleep in that beach chair uh, at nights in the studio but on top of um late studio nights you also had a lot of late networking nights in terms of you know being a creative practitioner who toggles between art and fashion I assume that you would be constantly out at fashion events and art openings because you needed to be visible and you are your brand essentially. So you have to network with people and you have to liaise with people. And so, you you know, you have a drink, you have a good time, but you know, that's playbar and that's, that's essentially work. You know, you are playing your work. Yeah. But that's the other thing about this, like, you know, it's it's, it's another layer like of the onion is stripped back is like the, the social you know, the, the the socialness is becomes like something where I've got a really good friend, artists like Holly Leonardson and, you know, someone who like I, we DM each other like the work in progress kind of thing because, you know, she she lives interstate um, and we, we don't live, we've never, we haven't lived um, for years in the same city and, you know, maintaining your relationships like in a, in a digital way and you need those people to bounce ideas off at the same time when all of this has been happening and we are locked down and we when I was I didn't feel like this urge to be like really social I wasn't one of those people yeah. who were on the zoom parties and things like that I was probably just being really introspective in my studio and just making the work and then going home to my partner and I it, it sounds sad but it's not it's just like nature of being and some people crave like like the c- connection with people more and then other people like I think it's yeah for me it was always something that was like a byproduct of work yeah there's always something to to go to to support a friend and to go to a show and to see all these people that you've known since art school and but yeah I feel like 
I don't know, that, that having social uh, social aspects stripped away from your life, again, is another way that, that helped me to, like, really get introspective and really focus on my work and, like, regenerate myself in a way. So, yeah, there's, a, there's good and bad to, like, everything. Like, obviously, like, you know, we can't keep going on like this forever, but mm. as humans, we need to be around people. It's, yeah, amazing how adaptive we are, I guess. Gosh, way. yeah. Yeah, we're very resilient in the yeah. arts because we're constantly taking blows and taking yes. oh, and lots when of you're um, business, When you're an artist and you're having to present work to people that, that, that these are the people that validate whether the work mm. is good or whether they'll you sell your work or mm. buy your work or, you know, that makes you really resilient. But, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, that, yeah, it's like it, that's a big heavy load to carry and sometimes it is nice and in moments like this it's just nice to not care about anyone's opinion about yeah, it just be yeah, yeah to yeah. Be, make work for you and to not have to think about mm-hmm. who you're making it for or yeah mm-hmm. that that's freeing as well yeah well I thought I'd leave you with one last question what are the things that you're most excited about as we slowly edge out of quarantine and hopefully we don't go into a second lockdown yeah. what are the things that you're excited to do again or to discover yeah I'm excited to again be in a room with with friends viewing mm. artwork in the flesh mm. deck you know I'm excited for that you know, I guess you know I'm, I'm excited to have friends over to come to my studio and you know to see work in person and mm. you know, to the farmer's market and feel a little bit safer in a crowd yeah to be able to you know buy my fruit and veg every Saturday mm. in, you know in an open air kind of you know run crowd of people. so yeah I think there's just a lot of things that are part of the, my routine mm. of, it's nice to be able to just not feel like you have to put on airs and graces of what you need to represent your life is my life is like this or I'm just, I'm tired of, I feel like every social media makes us, even if we don't realise we're doing it, we are like curating how we're presenting ourselves to the world. No, it's just, it's just nice. But sometimes it is exhausting, but then also sometimes I'm worried. I'm like, oh man, I should not have said that. Like, that's not good for the business. Like you shouldn't tell people that or, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. And the reason why I started this podcast was to have those work and introspective conversations with artists like you about the multiple ways in which we deal with the arts process during these highly wavering times, but to also normalise things like vulnerability and anxiety, which many of yeah. us in the creative sector live with. And I was thinking the other day about this time many years ago when you and I were both heading to an art event together. And I remember we were getting ready and you decided to put red lipstick on your lips. And as you looked into the mirror, you said to me nonchalantly, I need to put color to hide my lips because my lips look like Batman. I have <gasps> Batman shaped lips. Terrible curse. And I remembered, wow, what a bright, what a bright visual way to lean into that vulnerability. <laughs> it was a gorgeous and incandescent oh, memory that I have of you. So much because you know, I think throughout anxiety, it makes us more human. Yeah, and it's good to remember that. On that note, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today, Bianca. It's always good to catch up. Yeah, a big voice hug. I'm back at you. Bye.
I'd like to close out this episode by reading some words by Dylan Coleman, a Kokatha Greek woman who teaches Indigenous health to medical dentistry and health science students at the University of Adelaide. For over two decades, Dylan has worked across Aboriginal education, land rights, arts and health, with a focus on Aboriginal community engagement and social justice. In 2011, her book, Maids in Grace, was awarded the Arts Queensland David Nipon Award for an unpublished Indigenous writer. This opening paragraph is from a short story by Dylan called Walbia Gu Bru in The Body, an anthology, published in 2004 by Wakefield Press. My mother's skin smells like rain-drenched mully scrub earth-breaking drought. I cling to the bow of her leg, arms tightly wrapped, face nuzzled into her thigh. She's strong and grounded. Her roots run deep into this land, golden with its skin of dry, waving wheat, beckoning harvest in a good year. And her fringes of wild Malay, as defiant in the knowledge of being as they have always been, will always be. Knowledge that no harvest can reap because it belongs to something more something far beyond skin deep. Her layers of sandstorms wash over my mind in thundering resonance and her memories fall upon me like rain touching dry lips. This is the last episode of the Interno podcast series as part of the Making Artwork project. Interno is created and produced by myself, Mariam Ocilia, and commissioned by the Institute of Modern Art. Special shout out to Sarah Thompson, Talia Pierce, Alex Holt, and Liz Now at the IMA for cheerleading this project. Each Interno episode is accompanied by a transcript and reading notes covering the topics that I discuss with my guests. You can find this on the website makingart.wac. Thank you for listening to Interno. I hope these conversations have given you warmth and brightness.